she understood that she might very well come home in a box, that she wouldn't necessarily make it out alive. Karen had followed accounts of the problems in Iraq for years, and at this point it was early in the year of 2003. It was abundantly clear that war was coming to Iraq, and she had made plans to work with a Christian relief agency in Iraq, supporting the local church by adding to their testimony the love of other followers of Jesus, even from an enemy nation. She had weighed the pros and she had weighed the cons. She had thought about it long, hard, biblically and logically. She had had people praying for her. She got counsel from pastors, but everybody was a little bit worried. Her pastors were anxious. She understood that it could be a very, very costly decision. But after thinking and weighing matters, she had a strong sense of calling that God wanted her to serve the Christians of Iraq and to empower their mission. For Karen, it felt like a question of obedience. She wasn't concerned about results. She wasn't, she wasn't worried about dying. She had one priority. She treasured her God. She treasured his mission. She wanted to obey that sense of leading that she had. Uh, and I can, I can speak, I know for myself and probably for most of us in this room, when I, I say that we aren't always that eager to suffer, We're not always that eager to take risks to obey something that we believe God wants us to offer to him. We're going to look at a passage this morning from the 26th chapter of Deuteronomy, written by Moses, uh, that talks a lot about Christian obedience. This is Deuteronomy chapter 26. We're going to read verses 16 to 19. Follow along. This is the word of our God. The Lord your God commands you this day to follow these decrees and laws. Carefully observe them with all your heart and with all your soul. You have declared this day that the Lord is your God and that you will walk in his ways and that you will keep his decrees, commands, and laws and that you will obey him. And the Lord has declared this day that you are his people, his treasured possession, as he promised, and that you are to keep all his commands. He has declared that he will set you in praise, fame, and honor, high above all the nations he has made, and that you will be a people holy to the Lord your God as he promised is God's word. What is God saying through Moses to Israel, to the people of God, to the church, to us? What is he saying to you? What is he saying to me? What he's saying here is he's saying, I want you to treasure my instruction. Uh, Look at Look at it. It's a call to obedience. That's verse 16. The Lord your God commands you this day to follow his decrees and laws. Verse 17. You will keep his decrees and commands and laws that you will obey him. Obedience is is a posture of the soul. Obedience is not always easy. Obedience means doing what you don't feel like doing and not doing what you do feel like doing in order to be faithful to someone that you love. 
someone that you're committed to, somebody that you're devoted to serve. Uh, It's ordering my life according to what God says is true instead of what I might think on my own is true. And, And when I find myself weighing, when I'm tempted and I find myself weighing whether or not to be faithful to God, whether or not to do what he says, understand at that point I am already being unfaithful to my God. Because at that point, who is sovereign? At that point, I've already placed myself in the position of sovereignty. And I'm weighing God, treating Jesus not as my Lord, but as my advisor or personal assistant. To treasure God, to treasure his instruction, is to view it as being so infinitely wiser than what I would come up with on my own. To treasure something is to see God and his word, to see Jesus and his kingdom as something that's so precious that I have to have it, that it's my first priority. I'm willing to give up everything else. I'm willing to throw aside results or consequences in order to be faithful to do what he says. That's to treasure something. The way Jesus described it in the Gospels and what was just just read, what Jenny read to us a minute ago, is he said it's like you see a treasure and you know it's buried in a field and you are willing to sell everything you have and enjoy, Jesus said. He goes and he buys the field and he digs up the treasure, the one thing he just has to have. Jesus says it's like like a a merchant, a pearl dealer, who, who sells everything he has in order to Get that one pearl that is so big and so beautiful and so precious. It's, it's something that you offer in joy because you want something more than you want yourself. To treasure God's words that highly is to embrace the call of God when he says, Greg, I want you to obey what I tell you to do. It's, it's interesting. The only commandment we have in the Bible from the Virgin Mary, it's fascinating, That's all we have from her. Just one little snippet is it's at the wedding of Cana and they've run out of wine and they're Presbyterians. So they're freaking out over this. And so they've got to have some wine. And she goes to Jesus as Jesus, we're out of wine. And Jesus is like, and then Mary says to the servants, she points at Jesus, says, do, do you remember this? Do whatever he tells you to do. Friends, there are times when the wine has run out and you have blown it and it is bad and things are not good and all the joy is gone and all the happiness of life is gone. And at that point, Mother Mary comes to you speaking words of wisdom saying, do whatever he tells you to do. Yeah. All right, Greg, I hear you. Every week I come here, Greg, and you always say, grace, 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 gospel, 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 not what we do, what God does for us, gospel, grace, grace, gospel, grace. And then you come, and this morning you just pull the rug out from under all of it. You're presenting Christianity as some kind of biblical morality, a moral straitjacket, one-size-fits-all set of rules. And I'm not, but I am saying there is a one-size-fits-all set of rules. That's just not the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel will be the third main point that you should get that pattern by now. Um, The Bible does present commands, not suggestions. And yet limitations are not always a bad thing. Limitations don't always equal slavery. If you are a fish and you're in your fish tank, and you have incredible freedom to move around, because it's a really big, like, saltwater fish tank with, like, the 
the, the, the glowy lights that make the fish all colorful. It is a fantastic environment. And yet, if you look at that and you say, I don't like these restrictions. I feel like I'm being enslaved. I want to be free. And you jump out of the fish tank. Then what happens is you actually perish because in that instance, it's not a question of whether the limitations are enslaving you. It's a question of which limitations actually line up with your nature, the nature for which you were created. And if you're a fish, the limitation of you can't get out of the water is actually a limitation that gives you life and enables you to be the fish that God designed the fish to be. A runner who hits the pavement when they don't want to, they don't feel like it, they're tired, they're exhausted, and yet week in and week out, they get it they hit the pavement and they run and they run and they run and they run you know what what that enables is it opens up a freedom so that they can then go to boston and run a marathon and actually get a good time something they never thought they would have been able to do beforehand you know if you are that seven-year-old sitting at the piano at home for two hours every single afternoon because your mom is making you take piano lessons and your mom is making you practice piano that that feels like restriction that feels like slavery and yet 20 years later you've got a a, a, mas- a maestro who can just sit down at any piano and sight read any music with freedom to do something that no one would have thought possible beforehand it's a question of which limitations actually make us more free which limitations actually enable us to flourish because they actually line up with the nature for which we were made the god himself who made us placing restrictions on us so that we might flourish. We have in this passage a call to obey those restrictions so that we might live. And yet it's so much more than that. We have here a call toward a Godward life, not focused on the rules, but focused on the one who speaks this law. The Bible describes, even in this passage, uh, a path a highway, a direction in life, walking in God's ways in verse 17. Uh, The Bible doesn't give us an answer to every question we have, but it gives us uh, a, a general direction, a path to walk along, a way, a goal with some clear lines on either side that would warn you if you're preparing to step off the path. You know, in terms of epistemology and how we know what's true, you know, there are basically three approaches. The, the traditional view says, uh, you know, I am going to follow the rules, the dictates, the assumptions, the beliefs of my tribe or my tradition. And then you have sort of the modern view, which is the Disney view that says you need to follow your heart. It's, it's Jiminy Cricket uh, saying, let your conscience be your guide. Oh, Jiminy, so many serial killers have done that. And then there's a third way, not the traditional way of following your tribe or tradition, not the modern way of looking inside yourself and seeing how you feel, but actually a way of looking outside yourself to a Savior who loves you intimately and deeply and completely and who actually speaks to his people in history, looking beyond what your tribe says, looking beyond how you feel to actually walk in his ways and find the wisest means to the noblest end and incredible freedom within that. He's casting here a positive vision, a positive calling for for a life in response to his grace, what life looks like when you're in covenant with, with the God behind the universe, when you're united to Christ, when you actually believe the gospel. You know, it's 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 an incredibly positive approach to the spiritual life. Uh, you know, my, my Kiwi friend uh, from, from New Zealand works for the New Zealand government. And he uh, his job is actually to spot 
forged passports because evidently all the world wants to live in New Zealand because it's pretty. And, uh, and so, you know, I was talking to him and, and he was describing his job and he said, you know, I don't really spend a lot of time studying all the ways to fake a passport. My training is in how to spot a real passport. Because if you know what a real passport looks like, all of the other forgeries are really obvious. And that's what God gives us in his instruction and in his word and his laws and his commands in the Old Testament, the New Testament, and the Sermon on the Mount uh, throughout the scriptures is he's giving us a positive vision. This is what it looks like when you're seeking me, when you're flourishing, when you're walking my way. This is what it looks like when you're loving God, when you're loving your neighbor. And then within that, however, he does focus on certain clear boundaries. He says in verse 16, I want you to be very, very, very careful how you live. He says, I want you carefully to observe what I say. It means proactive intentionality. Uh, you know, it's not just an issue of fleeing temptation. That's, that's a reactive posture towards spiritual growth. It's, it's a, a, a picture of proactively mortifying sin. Uh, Paul talks about in Romans, putting to death the misdeeds of the body. You know, what does that look like? Well, I, as an unmarried man, uh, you know, want to honor God with my sexuality. I want to offer that to him and please him with that. Uh, and yet my sexuality is very, very broken. There's a lot of temptation. There are temptations that I have to learn to flee. That's being reactive. When I see certain things, when certain things pop my way, when something pops onto my phone, I need to get away really quickly. That's a reactive side, but there's a proactive side. When you know what right looks like, you can actually go and begin to undermine the roots of sin, cutting it off at, at, at the root. You can, you can take the proactive posture, not just being on the defense, but being on the offense. For example, if sexual temptation comes to me most powerfully when I'm alone and when I'm lonely, I can focus on building relationships over decades, building community, being with people, not spending so much time alone, actually proactively learning to live transparently in a community of people who know all my junk and know all my failings and love me anyway. And by that, I'm actively chopping at the roots of sin within me because I'm focused on being healthy in what Scripture describes as, as, as the life in Christ. And this requires for me a humble realization that I am not what this life is all about. This life is about something that is far more amazing than me. It's a bigger mystery that's at play in the universe. This mysterious God has pulled me into his life and into his kingdom. And so my destiny is, is wrapped up in him. I view my life at, at my best moments. I view my life as, as a torch. And a torch's purpose is to shine light in some really dark places. And that's my calling in ministry and in with my life. And, and I don't know if I'm a big torch or a little torch, if I'm a slow-burning torch or a quick-burning torch, but I understand as a torch, if I am consumed in the burning, then I will have fulfilled the purpose for which I was made because I don't exist for myself. I have a calling from God and I need to be obedient to that call because he loves me and he wants me to treasure that call and treasure what he calls me to. The following is a prayer that has been attributed to a Muslim convert to Christ. He prays, O oh God, Allah, I am Mustafa the tailor and I work at the shop of Muhammad. The whole day long I sit and I pull the needle and the thread through the cloth. O oh God, you are the needle, and I am the thread. I am attached to you, and I follow you. 
when the thread tries to slip away from the needle, it becomes tangled and must be cut so it can be put back in the right place. Allah, help me to follow you wherever you lead me, for I am really only Mustafa the tailor, and I work in the shop of Muhammad on the great square. To follow the Lord your God. God is saying, I want you to treasure my instructions. So why is that so hard? It's hard because obedience always deals not merely outwardly, but inwardly with the issues of the heart. Uh, Did you see it here in verse 16? Uh, Observe my decrees with all of your heart and with all of your soul. And making it about the heart, making it about the soul is what makes it complicated because my actions flow from my heart. Psalm 4 says, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. And the heart, it's not just my emotions. The heart is not how I feel. The heart is my inner being. The heart is is the seed of my soul. And in Matthew 15, Jesus said that it's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. Jesus said, out of the heart come evil thoughts and murder and adultery and sexual immorality and theft and false witness and slander. These are what defile a person. You know, sometimes it's really troubling to actually own up to the fact that everything you've ever said and done has flown out of your heart. I mean, I can, I can say something really cocky and arrogant and make people laugh. But the problem with that is that I can't then say, oh, I'm not really that kind of a guy. Because I am absolutely that kind of a guy. I'm a cocky, arrogant heart that is overflowing with cocky, arrogant statements. Uh, you know, if I, if I look at something on the internet that I shouldn't look at, I've been doing well on that recently, but if I do, you know, I am that kind of guy. I'm the kind of guy that would do that. If I lie about it, what does that tell you about me? Well, I'm not really that kind of guy. Of course I am. Because out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the heart come our actions. It's my inner being is defective. My inner being is broken. I actually am that kind of guy. And to, to own that raises this question then, well, if that's the seed of it, if I need to honor God with my, all of my heart and all of my soul, you know, that's kind of the catch-22 because how can I change my heart? I'm actually expected to love God from the heart. Jesus says in Matthew 6 that wherever my treasure is, there my heart will be also. How can I change what my heart treasures? How can I change what I'm drawn to? How can I change what captures my spirit? How can I change what actually captivates me? Uh, You know, it's what makes this next bit so incredibly challenging and yet also really eye-opening for me because... God is actually telling us that the bar of obedience has been set impossibly high. He doesn't just say, love God with your heart. He doesn't say, love God with your soul. He says, I want you to love me with all of my heart and all of my soul. Jesus reiterated it in the greatest commandment. He called it the greatest commandment. Love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength with everything that you have, not, not 15 sixteenths of your heart, 16 sixteenths of your heart, not 97% of your strength, 100% of your strength. That means that if that's the greatest commandment, then I have been committing the greatest sin 24-7 my entire life. I'm committing the greatest sin right now because I do love God. I do love God with my heart, but I love a lot of other things with my heart too. And that means I'm impossibly broken because the bar has been set impossibly high. 
God gives in his law a picture of what the real standard is, of what real love for God looks like, what real love for neighbor looks like, what real justice looks like, what real shalom looks like, how it was all meant to function before the fall, how we were supposed to live before we were broken. All your heart, and yet I don't love God with all of my heart. All your soul, and yet I don't love God with all of my soul. This law functions, you see, as a messenger of grace to help us see how very resistant to him our hearts can be. It's by showing me what true devotion looks like, what unquestioning obedience looks like, by showing me what heartfelt love looks like. God is showing me how much I don't do all of that, and that is a good thing when it comes to God in his mercy and grace, when he comes to me saying, Greg, I want all of your heart and you're unwilling. I'm looking at this area over here, Greg, the one that you thought you had sealed off from me. Maybe you have an area like that too. Maybe for you, it's your relationship with money. Maybe it's your relationships. Maybe it's some area of bitterness that you have let take hold in your soul. Maybe it's something with regard to your sexuality. Maybe it's something God wants you to confess. Maybe it's something he wants you to invite other people into. Maybe there's something he's wanting you to offer him. And you've said, no, I can't give this up over here. And God is saying, I want you to offer that precise area to me. I want from you a costly obedience. I want you to offer me the suffering that will come when you entrust that area to me. And then when we fall on our face in failure, that's when we're ready for the gospel. That's the law of God pointing us to our complete need for the open arms of the grace of Jesus. Sometimes it can feel like God is crushing us just to break us of our self-righteousness so that we'll lean on his grace and yet God uses all of our suffering and he redeems it toward his gracious ends to get us to the end of ourselves, out of ourselves and into Christ. Oswald Chambers said it this way, said, God can never make me whine if I object to the fingers he uses to crush me. If God would only crush me with his own fingers and say, now my son, I'm going to make you broken bread and wine poured out in a particular way and everybody will know that I'm the one doing it. But when God uses someone who is not a Christian or someone who I particularly dislike, or when he uses some set of circumstances, which I had said that I would never submit to, and then begins to make these the crushers I object. Chambers continues, I must never choose the scene of my own martyrdom, nor must I choose the things God will use in order to make me broken bread and poured out wine. His own son did not choose. God chose for his son that he should have a devil in his company for three years. We say, well, I want angels. I want people better than myself. I want everything to be significantly from God. Otherwise, I can't live the life. I can't do the thing properly. I always want it to be guilt-edged. Yet Oswald says, Chambers says, let God do as he likes. If you are ever going to be wine to drink, you must be crushed. Grapes cannot be drunk. Grapes are only wine when they have been crushed. I wonder what kind of coarse finger and thumb God has been using to squeeze you. And you have been like a marble and escaped, for you are not ripe yet. And if God had squeezed you, the wine that came out would have been remarkably bitter. Let God go on with his crushing, because it will work his purpose 
in the end. This is all part of God's merciful grace to break us and bring us to the end of ourselves and get us outside ourselves and into Christ because God uses your failings. God uses your suffering. God uses your unfulfilled longings, your hard-heartedness, your apathy. He uses our unwillingness, our pain. He uses your shame. He uses all of it to show you that, that you can't keep trying to live your life as if you're your own master. All of this, especially our inability to love God as we should, is a signpost graciously and mercifully pointing us outside ourselves to Jesus who stands with outstretched arms ready to embrace. See, I don't treasure God's instruction to the degree I ought. I treasure it in part, but not with all my heart, not with all my soul. So how can my heart change? If I'm not there, but I want to get there, how can I treasure God's instruction? How can I treasure God when I can't control my own heart? Uh, to truly love him with a complete and undivided heart, with all of my soul. God is saying, I want you to treasure my instruction but that's hard because it's an issue of the heart and we can't always control what our heart does. So how is it possible, friends? You have to know and understand that you are treasured. The language. Have you noticed the language that God uses in this passage in Deuteronomy about you is simply striking. Three times in a row, Moses speaks of your God, using the possessive, your God, your God, your God. You can hear the rhythm of the passage. You can hear the relationship. Can you hear the connection? Can you hear that covenantal possessive? The Lord your God, the Lord your God, the Lord your God as he promised. That's, that possessive language is something that you expect to hear in a marriage or in an, in an engagement. Uh, you know, when you're, when you're talking to a guy and he's flipping through photos in his phone and he gets to one and shows it to you, and it's of him with a woman about his own age, and they are both very airbrushed and they're nicely dressed and her hair is flowing in the breeze and they're holding hands with their fingers doing this little like pickling finger thing. And in the background, you've got, you've seen this photo. In the background, you're in Forest Park and it's the fountains of the Grand Basin frolicking behind and, and the lighting is just so perfect and it's just, uh, they just look so happy. And, and you don't know her name, but you know something about her because you've seen this before. You know what this looks like. You are looking at an engagement photo. And, and that's because that's his fiance. His fiance. Did you notice the possessive, the modifier? Uh, there's a possessive aspect and exclusivity to that kind of relationship. This is more than a relationship. You know, you, you know this is probably not the time to mention that you absolutely hate the sweater she is wearing. You know that it's probably not appropriate to say that red is a very brave color for her to wear. You know, you don't want to mention that the lighting shows up the wrinkles on her face, you know, because he would want to kill you, uh, even though he might not. If he's a brother in Jesus, hopefully he would forgive you. But uh, you, the reason is that this is his fiance, and nobody gets to say anything negative about his fiance except him, and vice versa. She only, she's the only one who gets to say the same because it's a covenanted relationship. It's a relationship that is possessive. There is a bond in this relationship, uh, you know, and that goes both ways. And that's how the Bible describes our relationship with God. It is covenanted. It is possessive. 
We are his people. He is our God. It's repeated not once, not twice, but three times in this passage because we are the Lord's betrothed. We are his fiance. It's a biblical picture in the Old and New Testament. He is far more committed to you than you are to him because you are his fiance. The Lord your God. The Lord your God. The Lord your God just as he promised. It's striking language. And then did you notice in verse 18, he calls you his treasured possession. The Lord has declared this day that you are his people, his treasured possession, as he promised. His treasure. Do you let that sink in for a moment? Think about that. That means that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob views you as a buried treasure in a field and he is ready and willing to sign up to sell everything he has with joy to purchase that field in order to dig you up. If you're underground, he's got a shovel. If you belong to someone else, he will pay whatever price to get the thing that he most wants, the thing that he treasures, that is his treasured possession. This means that you are the pearl that God the merchant saw. And because he had to have you, he sold everything else in order to get that one thing he wanted most, which is you. You know what treasure is like. You've been there on a Christmas morning when the kids are walking down the staircase. And as they're walking down the staircase, they see the tree and they see all the stuff under the tree. And the kids' eyes are getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And that is what the eyes of God look like as he looks upon you right now because you are his treasure. And then he promises you this place of honor. In verse 19, he will set you in praise and fame and honor higher than any people who have ever walked the earth. That language is the most uncomfortable language when applied to us. Honor, maybe God could honor us. Fame, maybe he could make us famous. But but praise? That we would be praised? It sounds like the language of worship. That, that we might receive praise, adulation, adoration, delight, veneration. That we might be treated as something truly treasured. There's no way to squirm, not to squirm with this language. But so great is God's adoration for us, his people. If you have Jesus, I'm talking about you now. That is the exalted language with which God delights over you in song. People do crazy things when they're in love. They sing silly songs that they otherwise would be too embarrassed to sing. Uh, when you're in love, you speak words that are filled with grossly inflated language. You treat your lover as if they're the most important thing in the cosmos. You'd do anything for them, for their delight, for their approval, to be with them. And this language is simply striking because it reveals to us a God who is in love with his people. A God who is in love with you. We do crazy things when we're in love. Uh, It's no different than God. Jesus is one who sees a treasure in a field. And he sells everything in order to buy it and purchase it. And you are that treasure. Um, while I was working on this sermon, I actually, uh, I was working at home and had a cat in my lap on the couch in the living room, Bible open, working on the phone. And I uh, heard this loud, 
and the entire building shook. And I thought, what on earth just happened? And I start looking around, and finally I get to the kitchen door onto the fire escape, and I look outside on the fire escape, and there's this little tiny bird on its back on the fire escape with its legs kind of bent all awkward, and its mouth, its beak is kind of opening and shutting very slowly, and its eyes are squinting and it's twitching. And I, I, at this point, the cats have run under the bed, and so they're not worried about them. I go outside, and I... I pick this little bird up and I cup it in my hands, make it vertical so it can breathe maybe, and I look and I'm looking to see if there's any blood or any obvious physical trauma that I can identify, and I don't see anything, but I'm not at all confident. And I just start praying for this little bird because my heart is so filled with compassion for this little bird and its suffering. And I, I open the door and I take the bird inside into a condo with two cats, I know, but they're hiding. And I grab, you know, while holding it with one hand, grab a bunch of paper towels with the other, and I carry it through the condo out onto my front terrace. And there I've got a little lantern from Ikea that holds a little tea light. And I take the tea light out and open up the lantern and set the paper towels in there and create a little nest for this bird. And I drop them in the nest so that the paper towels will hold him vertical while he's breathing. And, and I sit there and I pray for this little bird. And... Uh, um, and my heart is just so full for this thing. I'm asking God to, to please restore this bird or let it go peacefully and let it not be injured and get eaten by a cat somewhere. And, uh, and so about every 10 minutes, I go out and I check on the little guy. And after about two hours of continually checking on him and praying for him, I go out and he's, he's kind of upright and his eyes are open now and his beak's not moving. He's not twitching. He's just kind of looking around and I go down and I put my little finger up in front of him to see if he'll jump on my finger and he looks up at me and I, he doesn't quite smile but he kind of cocks his head and then, and then he flies off into the tree. And at that point, I'm so thankful to God. What I, what's my point? Uh, my point is that I can be a jerk. I am a definite mixed bag. My heart can be in all sorts of different places. I am a broken, self-centered guy and yet I am filled with compassion for the suffering creature. Why would you think God is less loving than me? Why would you think he would have less compassion for you, his own children, his own betrothed? Why would you think his heart would be less full when he looks upon you in your brokenness than my heart is when I look upon one broken bird? Jesus says you are worth more than many sparrows. You are the one he loves, and a man will do crazy things when he is in love, and that is precisely why Jesus Christ, in the fullness of time, came to earth. He became human. He entered into your suffering. He entered into your brokenness. He was tempted in every way like we are and obeyed the Father so that he would have an obedience and a righteousness to give to sinners like us who have no faithfulness of our own. Jesus died in your place and he rose so that you might have life. He was willing to pay the price to purchase the field that contained his treasure. He bought you. He gave up everything in heaven and earth to gain the one thing he wanted most, which is you. You are his treasured possession. So we don't always treasure God. And we don't always treasure his instruction to the degree that we should. And we can't do that 
until we know how much He treasures us. That's the treasure of obedience. You will treasure God to the degree to which you realize how completely your Lord treasures you. We've got a slide. Do we have that picture? Karen Wilson. Karen Wilson was 37 years old, single and Christian when she sold her house. And then she sold her car and she gave away all of her possessions except what she could stuff in one duffel bag. It was early in 2003, just weeks before the start of the war in Iraq. She had joined her church seven years earlier as a new Christian. She had spent her vacations working in El Salvador, in Mexico, in Macedonia, and in Kosovo before going to Iraq. Those around her describe her as friendly, funny, and compassionate, but definitely a straight shooter. Hearing of ongoing problems in Iraq, she wanted to help, and so she took a leave of absence from her job in the commissary of a local prison in order to devote herself to supporting the international church and its witness by serving alongside Iraqi Christians. She had a sense of calling from God. She treasured that call. Despite all the cautions and the anxieties of her friends and her pastors, she moved to Iraq. She moved to Mosul, and there she spent much of her time as a Christian, helping to restore schools that had been used as ammunition dumps during the war. After over a year of helping Iraqis rebuild, Karen was helping set up a mobile water purification plant in Mosul on March 15th of 2004. On her way home from a day's work, she was sitting in the back seat of the car when a series of shots rang out and shattered the glass behind her. You can hear the thud. You can imagine the look on her face as she realizes the pain in her back. Neither she nor the two workers with her survived. She died at the age of 38 on the mission field. When her pastors back in California received the phone call, they were stunned. But they knew exactly what they had to do because she had prepared them. They walked into the pastor's office, and you can almost picture the scene as the lead pastor walks around to the back of the desk, turns the key and opens the drawer, and out he pulls a white envelope sealed shut. You can picture him fingering the edges of the envelope, delaying the action while the reality of the loss sinks in. Because on the front of that envelope is Karen's handwriting. She had written it over a year before, before she left. And on the front, she had written these words. You should only be opening this letter in the event of my death. Karen had known exactly what she was getting into. And the pastors read the words that she had prepared for just this moment. It was Karen's last sermon to her pastors. Dear Pastor Phil and Pastor Roger, when God calls, there are no regrets. I tried to share my heart with you as much as possible, my heart for the nations. I wasn't called to a place. I wasn't called, I was called to him. To obey was my objective. To suffer was expected. His glory, my reward. His glory, my reward. One of the most important things to remember right now, she writes, is to preserve the work. I am writing this as if I am still working with my people group. I thank you all so much for your prayers and support. Thank you for investing in my life and my spiritual well-being. Please keep sending out Christian workers. Please keep raising up young pastors. In regard to any service, keep it small and simple. Yes, simply just preach the gospel. 
Be bold and preach the life-saving, life-changing, forever eternal gospel. And give glory and honor to our Father. For my missionary heart, care more than some think is wise. Risk more than some think is safe. Dream more than some think is practical. And expect more than some think is possible. I was called not to comfort or to success. I was called to obedience. And there is no joy outside of knowing Jesus and serving him. I love you too, and I love my church family. In his care, salam, peace, Karen. Friends, that's a woman who knew she was treasured. And yet, this is also a picture of what Jesus did for you. When he saw you in a far-off land, and you did not know him, but he went to you, and he loved you, and he served you, and he sacrificed for you, and he died for you so that you might know how deeply he treasures you and that being treasured, you might learn to treasure him. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we give you thanks for your mercy, your faithfulness, your love, Lord, with which you have loved us. We consecrate to you now, Lord, the elements on this table, this bread and this cup, that you might preach the good news to us that as you wash our feet, we might then be empowered to wash the feet of others. We commission these elements, consecrating them now in the name of Jesus. Amen.